Welcome to Politics is Everything, the podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia, where, spoiler alert, we're alerting to the potential for spoilers in the 2024 presidential election. I'm Kara ong Whaley, uh, And I'm Kyle Kondik. So, Kyle, I want to start with the lead of a new analysis that you have on the crystal ball. Um, but then we can go back and talk about the states that have the strongest and those that have the lowest average voting for third party candidates. Um, The crux, I think, of your article really comes when you discuss whether we should expect a third party vote to be meaningfully higher or lower um, in the states that are most likely um, to impact the outcome in the presidential election in 2024. You know, I know you, you, you discuss in your new piece that a number of states have a, a track record of higher than average and and some that have lower than average voting rates for third party candidates. But I wonder if you can talk about um, what might happen with the third party vote in the seven states uh, that are likely to impact the election in 2024. Yeah, so what I did was I just kind of looked at the recent third party voting, you know, since 2000, which I think is like our current, you know, era of elections, basically. And I guess you could say, well, it's a small sample size, but, you know, that is the, um, uh, you know, we've had a lot of very close elections since then. The electoral coalition of uh, Bill Clinton in the 90s is different than what the Democratic coalition is now. And, you know, with the Republicans, same thing. So um, what I did, what I did is I just looked at like, you know, what, what states, uh, you know, how states vote third party on average. And, you know, the states that I think we and others have sort of focused on as being most important for 2024 are the seven states that were decided by less than three points in 2020. And those were North Carolina, won by Donald Trump, and the rest won by Joe Biden, um, Arizona, uh, Nevada, Georgia, and then Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And what we found is that, you know, those states do not necessarily, um, aren't necessarily known for, for producing a higher than average third party vote. You know, Nevada is a little bit higher in part because they actually let people vote for like none of the above. And so that option will get, you know, some share of the vote, even if it's, you know, if it's just like four or five tenths of the vote or some years it's higher than that. Um, Arizona is a little bit higher and we'll get into for, you know, regional raises as to why that is. Georgia and North Carolina are typically pretty low. Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan don't really stand out either. And so, you know, one thing just to think about is that, you know, whatever effect these third party candidates have, I don't think you'd expect it to be sort of more pronounced in the states that matter. Um, In fact, it probably would end up being more pronounced in the states that actually don't really matter or that where the where the outcome is uh, is pretty clear. Well, one thing I wanted to talk about um, is just perhaps a caveat um, as we go into the 2024 election. Um, Mark Hetherington, a political scientist, looked at third party uh, vote choice and and found if we go back to 1968, um, I believe he looked at 1968 through the 2000 election, um, that actually one of the things that affected a, a choice in terms of voting for a third party candidate was political trust. Um, and so when there was a viable candidate, I, mean, I think that's a key condition. Um, and we can talk about whether or not there is really a viable third party candidate for 2024. Um, but third party alternatives benefit from declining political trust at the expense of both of the major political parties. And looking at 2023 data from Pew Research Center, we have we, we are back to a moment of um, record lows following a slight increase in trust in 2020 and 2021, um, you know, 
trust, public trust in in the government has been low for for decades now, but but we're back to historic lows in 2023. Um, so I wonder, you know, just in, in thinking about this, if we should be thinking about the role that candidate viability and political trust might play in terms of impacting, um, especially those competitive states. Yeah, it's a it's a great point, and that's that's something that I, I think is is always worth mentioning about American politics. Is just that in, in American life in general is that trust in big institutions, be it government or media or even big business, just isn't isn't particularly high. Uh, I mean, there are some things you could point to that where there's there's higher trust, but a lot of our big institutions and entities just don't have don't have much trust. And you know, if you think about the the third party candidates, and it, it could very well be a long list of candidates because. You've got, you know, Cornell West, the progressive intellectual who was thinking of running as a Green Party candidate, but now won't be running on his own. Um, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., of course, who switched from the Democratic primary to running as an independent. Um, you'll probably have a Green Party candidate. You'll probably have a Libertarian candidate. Um, the no, li- no labels might produce a candidate. So you, you're getting to kind of a long list here. Um, but Kennedy seems to stand out in regards to what you're just talking about. In that he's definitely a um, a person who I think has frankly contributed to a lack of trust in in in, in things, particularly in, in medicine, um, but also stands to benefit from that sort of feeling because he's the person saying that hey, all these big entities are crooked and out to get you, and um, and you know criticizing vaccines, you know not just with COVID, but but that's sort of what he's been known for in public life for a long time. Um, he was one of the leading voices arguing that the 2004 election. Um, was somehow rigged in favor of George W. Bush. He never produced any any good evidence of that, as far as I could tell. Um, so you know, he he occupies that kind of place in American life. And my guess is is that to the extent he gets support, it's probably going to be from the, uh, the kinds of folks you might be talking about who are sort of lower on on uh, so, sort of social trust. There's also some thought that Donald Trump kind of benefit from that those sorts of folks too. Um, and maybe that's part of the reason why it seems like as Kennedy moves into becoming a third party candidate, that there's a little bit more concern on the Republican side about him than maybe on the Democratic side. Whereas previously, Republicans, I think, were happy to have Kennedy around because he was doing damage to Biden in the Democratic primary. But that those rules are reversed now. And you can see from some of the limited polling we've got that Kennedy maybe hurts Trump a little bit more than, than Biden. Although, you know, there's there are a handful of polls and I don't know if they're all like super consistent in what they what they find. But um, but yeah, I think that that social trust thing is 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 a, a a very important thing to bring up. So another point too is, and and we're we're already sort of seeing this, and I sort of made a pun about it in in our intro about whether or not third party candidates can play a a spoiler, and and oftentimes they're just accused of being a spoiler without necessarily having the evidence. Um, you know, I think back to the two thousand election and. Ralph Nader was accused of spoiling the election for Al Gore, um, especially in the key state of Florida. But, you know, when we when political scientists did an analysis after the fact, um, they actually found that 40 percent of Nader voters um, would have voted for George W. Bush as opposed to Gore. Um, So I wonder, like, what what else should we be thinking about in terms of especially, again, in these most competitive states about, you know, being quick to make assumptions that. Any of the candidates, whether it's RFK Jr. or Cornell West, um, a no labels candidate, um, uh, you know, or or any other, might actually be a spoiler. Yeah, and I mean, even more recently, it's not entirely clear to me that Hillary Clinton would have defeated Donald Trump 
at least in the electoral college, had it just been a head to head race. I mean, I was just going back and looking at some of the, the polling and, and, you know, it was, it was sometimes similar whether you had Gary Johnson and Joel Stein listed or whether it was just Trump versus Biden. People who vote third party will sometimes say, hey, I wouldn't have even voted if it wasn't for these other options or, or I wouldn't have voted, you know, major party. And so it's, it's a lot. It, you, the point you make is totally, it's a good one in that it's, it's, it's a lot more complicated than we think. And like, um, you know, Perot, um, there's some, you know, it, it possible that if Perot hadn't run in 92, that maybe Clinton uh, might not have done quite as well, but he still, I think, very likely would have won based on what I've read about that election. Um, so uh, uh, it, it, it's uh, um, you just even you just can't make assumptions necessarily about whether these things will turn out differently. And of course, I'm like a broken record in making this point, but like, unfortunately for us, we don't get to run ex elections as experiments. You know, it's like when you build a model, it's like, oh, we can test this 10,000 times based on whatever. It's like, well, well, I get to test it once. Um, we, you know, we don't know exactly how it's going to shake out. And, you know, some, some of these candidates may not be on the ballot in certain places. Um, just, I remember from, from 2020, you know, when Kanye West ran for president, um, there was, uh, you know, he, he, he didn't end up getting on in a lot of places and really didn't get that much support to begin with. Um, so I just say this, that, you know, it's, you know, we of course have to monitor these candidates, but it's not necessarily the case that their presence would change the ultimate outcome if they weren't actually running. Um, but it, and it's, you know, it's, it's another wild card. I mean, you know, analysts, myself included, had such a hard time with 2016 trying to suss everything out. And part of it, what happens is that when you, when you have these third party candidates listed in polls, they often get more support than they actually are going to end up receiving. So you have to kind of account for that. Uh, I mean, you know, I mentioned the piece that as late as like late September of 2016, you know, Gary Johnson was at like 9% in the real clear politics average and Jill Stein was at three. And, they ended up getting three and one percent, respectively. Um, so it 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 adds this sort of additional fog of war, and that doesn't even get into, you know, the fact that you know, Trump has been a hard person to poll when he's been running for you know running a general election in sixteen and twenty. So um, it just adds a adds a little bit of, of a challenge. And you know, again, you also have two potential major party nominees in Biden and Trump, where they're not very popular, um, and that creates. A group of people who dislike both candidates, and those are naturally the people who are likeliest to vote third party. Um, so again, it's just it's just a lot of um, a lot of variables with this one. So I want to switch gears um, and talk a little bit about your findings um, because I think you found some really um, interesting patterns in terms of where which states are most likely to see support for third party candidates. Um, and, and there were some sort of distinct regional patterns. So I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about what you found in terms of um, the states that are most that, that have a higher than average third party vote share. Yeah. And so it's, you know, it's the, the West is generally higher. And as I mentioned, you know, Arizona, Nevada, those are our two Western kind of premier swing states. And sure enough, they're a little bit higher than the average, although um, the state that had the highest average third party voting over the past six elections, um, I was a little surprised by, but it, it makes sense once you, you had the context. And that's Utah, which is, you know, a very reliably Republican state. Um, but there was this gigantic protest vote there um, against Trump and for Evan McMullen, who was like, you know, a uh, kind of Mormon never Trump candidate. And of course, Utah is by far the most Mormon state in the country. 
And so uh, McMullen ended up getting a little over 20% of the vote there. Um, he got like six and a half in Idaho, and then nowhere else was he over two. Idaho also has a kind of substantial uh, Mormon population, although not nearly as, as high as Utah. Um, but even if you consider that outlier year, which is kind of like the biggest single third-party performance we've seen this century, Utah is still above the average in all six elections. So it's not just McMullen. It's there are other instances of it too. And a lot of the other Western states are. Um, and then on the flip side, um, the South is typically low for third party voting and not just in the two thousands. Um, a lot of Perot, Ross Perot's weakest performances were in the South. It's sort of hard to pinpoint exactly why that is. Um, part of it may be that our, now this doesn't apply to Perot, but, but it applies to the, our sort of more recent third party candidates in that you know, green, the Green Party, you know, far left party and then libertarians is like kind of a laissez faire, um, you know, socially more moderate, economically conservative party. Um, you know, that maybe those parties are probably a better fit for the West just as a kind of the voters out there, the, the, the political region, et cetera. Whereas, you know, the South is just um, kind of our, it's our most religious region. It's our most kind of most politically conservative region. And it may just be that libertarians and greens are just a bad fit. For that part of the, the country, there may be some other reasons for it, but um, and, and as I mentioned, you know, Georgia and North Carolina, the two key states in, in the South for the um, for 2024 um, of the seven key swing states, those had the lowest average um, third party voting. Um, so, you know, if you're thinking about the places where the third parties maybe you might get a little bit more support, you probably would look at Arizona and Nevada and the West more broadly speaking. Um, you know, and then, and then, you know, some, some, in some elections, the Northeast can be a little bit higher. Um, Vermont was very high on the average list. Um, also part of that was that there was this big write-in vote for Bernie Sanders in 2016, um, as a, you know, as a protest vote, uh, against Clinton. Of course, Clinton still won Vermont easily. And many of the states that are, that do have kind of clearly higher than average third party voting. Um, there are states that are very reliable for one side or the other. Um, of states that I would consider to be somewhat competitive, um, Minnesota can be higher, Maine can be higher, um, and Colorado can be higher. But those are all states that are still, you know, definitely more democratic leaning than than not. Um, and that was, you know, that was particularly true in in, in 2020. Um, uh, so, um, you know, those are the kind of regional patterns. But you know, I think the takeaway is that. You, we shouldn't in the in the most important states. I don't think we should expect these third party candidates to do um, to do much better in the key swing states than they do nationally, and they very well may end up doing worse. Well, the other big news that's happening um, literally just happened a few mo moments before we started recording was that the House Republicans have elected a new speaker uh, in Representative Mike Johnson. Um, this comes after three weeks of Kevin McCarthy's historic ouster. There were 220 votes for Johnson and 209 votes for uh, the minority leader, uh, Democrat Hakeem Jeffries. Um, Johnson was able to, after, after multiple failures by, by other candidates within the GOP, Johnson was able to get unanimous support in, in this round. Um, although, of course, one Republican, um, Van Orden, was, was absent from the vote. Um, you know, we're, if we look at Representative Mike Johnson, I think... Uh, a key reason why um, he was perhaps able to ultimately emerge um, uh, as speaker is that he's been a vocal supporter of former President Donald Trump. 
Um, he was, however, a key figure within Congress in efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Um, but he, he does have a leadership role. He was first elected in 2016. He serves as vice chairman of the House Republican Conference. Um, and he's also the deputy whip for the Republican Party, um, which is an assistant leadership role. Um, so, you know, I, I think our, our colleague Natalie Jackson at National Journal sort of made a really key point um, this afternoon after the election, which is that, you know, Mike Johnson is sort of in line with where Republican voters are. Um, I think that's an important point um, to acknowledge. But at the same time, um, again, particularly because of his efforts to overturn the 2020 election, you know, I personally have some deep concerns um, that were also expressed by Center for Politics Professor of Practice Liz Cheney uh, on Face the Nation last Sunday, um, which is, you know, what are the implications of having uh, someone who was involved in those efforts as now in a, a key leadership role in the House of Representatives? Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, I think part of what happened here is that, you know, Republicans just kind of ran out of options and Johnson I think the very fact that he's like fairly anonymous, um, I mean, there were senators talking about how they don't basically don't even know him. Um, I think it was actually helpful because he he seems to be someone who is like relatively well liked by, you know, other members of the Republican conference, um, whatever his own, you know, whatever his own politics may be. And so it's like, you know, it's like Jim Jordan was like prominent enough to have enemies within the Republican conference. Johnson may be in some ways politically similar to Jim Jordan, but hasn't made those kinds of enemies. And so, um, you know, it, it may just be that they sort of landed on him because um, these other candidates couldn't do it. You know, Tom Emmer was maybe going to be speaker. And then um, and he's someone who did vote to certify the 2020 election. Um, he's someone who was was supportive of the, the uh, um, effort to pass same-sex marriage through the House when Democrats were in charge. Uh, and look, I mean, there's, you know, there, there are other people in the, in the conference who didn't like those positions. And so, um, and so Johnson is, you know, there, I think I saw that uh, uh, Professor uh, Matt Green um, uh, uh, was was an expert on Congress. He was talking about how you know if you look at just some of the scoring, like Johnson's pretty clearly the most conservative speaker in a very long time, uh, you know, eighty plus years or, or something like that. Um, but you know, th the other thing is that he and I thought this way about Jordan too. Obviously, he didn't get the job, but it may be that Johnson can get some things done basically just because he's not Kevin McCarthy and he sort of gets this sort of, he might have this little honeymoon period where he could try to deal with some of this budget stuff and try to avert a shutdown. But, you know, ultimately if he continues to do that and, you know, try to make the trains run on time, there are certainly members of that conference who are going to, you know, be obstructionist to him. So we'll just have to sort of wait and see, but you know, this immediate crisis for house Republicans is over. Um, Democrats, you know, uh, uh, want to run against Johnson and point out his positions on some of these things and, you know, being very conservative on abortion, the, the stuff about the election. And those are things they plan to you know, to run on in 2024. I do think it's going to be, it's pretty hard. I mean, it's pretty hard to get any member of house or Senate leadership to be like a prominent national figure, at least from an electoral standpoint, I'd say Nancy Pelosi was an exception there. You invariably have to bring up the fact that she was the first woman speaker as part of that, but also she fit a specific stereotype that Republicans like to run against, which was like San Francisco liberal. So between all that stuff, she became a very prominent figure in Republican messaging. But like, we haven't necessarily seen that with other leaders on either side. Um, and um, um, and I, I just, you know, 
I don't think Johnson's going to be someone who's going to like immediately become sort of house, some sort of household name. I don't necessarily think Kevin McCarthy was, um, you know, so again, this immediate crisis is over, but you know, again, we still have these looming deadlines with, you know, to avoid a shutdown and whatnot. And, um, my guess is that when it's all said and done next October, you know, when we're leading up to the election, um, this battle probably will not be something people are thinking about, but you know, maybe we're going to have a turbulently next year in the house and maybe that will become part of the conversation depending on how Johnson does. One other thing, um, one of the big jobs of the speaker is just to raise a lot of money. And I don't think this guy has any real, you know, proven experience in doing that. Um, so that's, that's a new part of his job. I mean, you know, he's got a higher staff, he's got all sorts of other stuff. Um, as, as you mentioned, he's sort of been kind of part of leadership, but you know, it's not like he was the majority leader or something. Um, so he's got a lot, he's got a, his work cut out for him. There, there's at least some experience there that other folks who were being considered don't have in terms of having been deputy whip, um, you know, just being able to figure out where you have votes and, and where you don't, I think is an, is a really important role, especially in this moment when there are major crises um, and and pieces of, of legislation that they're going to have to confront in the next couple of weeks. So there might be some more quiet tactics um, that he can pursue that aren't as showy or outspoken, I guess, as, as some of the others have in the past. Well, just to piggyback off that point, um, one, you know, th- Johnson does have a record of like pass- get, getting some legislation passed and of being, you know, just like more involved in the nuts and bolts of, you know, passing legislation or whatever. You know, one of the knocks on Jordan was that he, in terms of legis, he just doesn't have really much, if any, legislative productivity. And so um, Johnson, wh- again, whatever you think of his politics, he may be more of a workhorse than a show horse, which I think, frankly, is something that an old cliche in there. Um, and, you know, frankly, that's something that, that House Republicans could probably need just, just for their own functioning. But the basic political alignment is still the same. You know, you've got a Republican House, you've got a Democratic Senate, you've got a Democratic President. Republicans have all this laundry list of stuff they want to do, but they really can't do a lot of it because it's not going to pass. So what, how, do they, how do they deal with that situation? And that's, it's, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough place to be. Um, but you know, you, you might've been getting to the point where like, maybe there could have been some sort of like cross party collaboration, although there was very little talk of that despite, you know, weeks of there being no speaker. Um, and so, you know, eventually the Republicans at least landed on someone that they could all, um, that they could all get behind, at least at the moment. We'll see how long that lasts. I certainly would have preferred a more consensus bipartisan candidate, but anyway. Yeah, I mean, that's just, you know, some state legislatures work that way, but that's just not the way the House works. Um, Not anymore, anyway. Yeah. Not in um, this moment. No. um, And and look, I mean, if you're you're Republican in the majority, you know, you you, you wanted to find a way to get a Republican speaker and that's what that's what ended up happening. And, you know, someone who's probably ideologically to at least a little bit to the right of Kevin McCarthy. But again, that doesn't that doesn't change the makeup of the Senate. It doesn't change the makeup of the presidency. And if there's a shutdown because the House, you know, because the House is making demands, well, it's, you know, the, the people who are asking for something different or for something new or something different in response to passing legislation or, you know, in, in exchange for, for keeping the government going, I think it becomes easy to sort of blame them if there is some sort of shutdown. So we'll just have to see about that. Well, Kyle, thank you as always for your incredible insights and in-depth analysis. Thanks, Kara. 
Coming up next, we talk with Gretchen Barton, principal of the Worthy Strategy Group, about a new study of perceptions of leadership and what it means for women in politics. And Natalie Jackson of the National Journal joins us for the conversation. Stay with us. We are talking about how Barbie the movie solved all of our problems about how women are represented in political leadership. Hey, Barbie. I'm Barbie, (laughs) a.k.a. Kara Ongwele. And I'm Natalie Jackson, (laughs) a.k.a. Nerdy Barbie. And I'm Gretchen Barton, a.k.a. Barbie has a cold, but thrilled to be here. So we are just delighted to have you with us, Gretchen. Um, You are now at Worthy Strategy Group, LLC, and have a new study about perceptions of leadership and what that means for women. Um, Thank you so much for reaching out last week after our crystal ball analysis came out about why we haven't seen a woman president yet in the United States. It was also good timing because now there is also new Pew Research Center data that they've updated with findings about women in political leadership. Gretchen, your, your strategy group has been researching the kind of leader Americans are looking for. I wonder if you can just start by explaining the significance of 22%. Oh, yeah. Well, sadly, that is, that is the number of a uh, percentage of women that will be polled in a sample of, of a representative sample of the 2020 electorate. That's how many people uh, think uh, women uh, should be an ideal leader. Uh, when you ask Americans about their ideal leader, uh, 65% of the time they bring in images of men. 22% of the time it's women. 13% of the time it's non-gender specific. Mostly a lot of dogs. Golden retrievers in particular. <laughs> so... It's looking pretty bad for the ladies. We got to do some work here. We've been studying leadership and, 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 you know, it all kind of started when we were looking to understand what Americans were looking for in their leaders. And in an early sample, we just noticed that women were missing from a lot of the images that we brought in. And, and what was weird, you know, we study people who are younger, multiracial. And I think that there's an idea out there that like the young people will save us all. Or as we, it was, we move into a multiracial coalition, it will save us all and everything will be amazing and we will all have froyos. And, but, um, unfortunately, it looks like deeply held views on women are still holding even amongst people who we would might view as being more progressive, more, more left leaning, more liberal towards a lot of different things. Um, and yeah, I mean, that 22% number, we got to change and, I had been hearing about it for for a while, you know, interviewing people about leaders in charge, and they'd been saying all kinds of things. And it really made me wonder, you know, is there something deeper going on here? Aside from just a specific bias towards women, is there something that people are not associating with women in leadership? And so that's what the study was about. And we sort of expanded to kind of understand how women are perceived and how specifically they need to be perceived in order to be viewed as an ideal leader. You know, it's interesting. Your study really comes close to um, what the new Pew report on uh, women in political leadership, where they asked a question of um, whether it's very whether it's important that we have a woman president in their lifetime. And eighteen percent said it's extremely or very important that we have a woman president in our lifetime. Um, 18% 18% said somewhat, and 64% said it either doesn't matter or it's, or it's not important. It's a big uphill, a, a big, big hill. 
I mean, was that surprising to you, Natalie, when you when you saw that? I'm I'm curious. Like as a woman, were you like, oh yeah, totally? Or how did that feel? I mean, how did that feel? <laughs> yeah, I I think uh, Gretchen's going to turn the tables on us, Kara. I really wasn't too surprised by that, you know, and mm-hmm. your study as well. I think the funny thing I I saw in yours was that, you know, 14% were bringing in things like dogs, um, which is an interesting uh, train of thought to kind of track down what's going on psychologically with that. Um, so, you know, sadly, I have to say this didn't really surprise me. I've worked in and around politics for a long time now. and. I think any woman who's been in and around the field kind of knows Kara probably isn't surprised either, I'm guessing. No, no, not surprised. Yeah, not shocked. There there was like an uphill trend for a little while um, where people were thinking, especially in the early aughts, that um, were more optimistic about women in political leadership. And we were also seeing more women come to office. Um but really, since 2016, we are starting to see a downward trend and actually more pessimism among women. Um, you know, I looked at a ton of surveys la- uh, for the crystal ball analysis last week. Um, and that was one of the things that actually surprised me is that women are, bec- are you know, just sort of less optimistic about prospects for having a woman president and just women in politics in general. But, you know, there was this sort of there, there's sort of a puzzle because on the one hand, Trump being elected president motivated a lot of women to that had been on the sidelines, had been maybe sidelines politically in, in terms of political participation for a while. Yeah. Um, motivated a lot of women to become active in campaigns and protests and other forms of political participation. Um, to to we saw more women run for office. Um, but then after that election, we've also seen just like greater pessimism as well about, um, how women are treated and, and prospects for women in political leadership. Yeah. You know, I don't know if this is okay to say, but the thing, the emotional feeling that I had the night that Trump was elected, this, I just, I remember taking my daughter, I dressed her in like the one white sweater and I strapped her to my chest. She was very young at the time. And I was, I was hopeful. I was really hopeful that it could happen. And I wanted so badly to tell her that night, like, look, we did it. We did it. You know, we voted a woman in for president. You can do anything. And that night I had a lot of feelings, you know, mostly dread, a lot of dread and, you know, a lot of crime. But the other feeling was like, oh, God, I didn't know how much they hated us. That sounds terrible. Right. But that was how I felt. And 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 I I I just. I, I, I want to see that change. I, and that's honestly, for me, the genesis of this project, because I, I've seen how Kamala has been treated. I've seen how Hillary has been treated. I've seen how so many other women are just put through the meat grinder of our media system, of our culture, and just through voters and how they talk about. It. I mean, just the things that people will say, you know, I didn't give you this stat, but um, the the number about the dogs, it gets it gets worse when you split it down into men and women and, and how, you know, how many percentages of, the, of women they bring in. Uh, you know, women will bring in women 25% of the time as an ideal leader. Men will bring in women 15, only 15% of the time. The rest of the time, it's, it's men 68% of the time, but they'll bring in more dogs than women as their ideal leader. 
which is freaking bonkers. It's it's not okay. It's not okay. And 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 the thing is that I think um, you know, it's important to to tackle a problem from a lot of different sides, right? To look at it from like, okay, like what do we need to do? Do we need to wear shoulder pads? Do we need to run faster? Run higher? Wear higher stilettos? Wear more lipstick? Did you know, there's there's always that angle, and I and I you know that's the unicorn approach. Um, but I think that the other approach is 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 really the runway, is the narrative runway approach. Um, there's an idea in corporate marketing that um, that there's something called shelf blindness. Have you ever heard of this before? Mm-hmm. Shelf blindness. It's when you go in and you want to buy your toothpaste, right? And you're familiar with Crest. I like Crest, Colgate too. But uh, anyway. <laughs> You go in and you're looking for your toothpaste, right? And then you see something and it's called like, I don't know, doofadoo. I don't, I don't know what it's called. But you, you're not familiar with it. They've, studies have actually shown you, you don't even see it. You, you see what you're familiar with. And, and so what, what we're trying to do with this project called What It Will Take is expand the consideration set for women as leaders so that people see more leaders uh, in their media and their cultural consumption than they do today. Right now, and we're partnering with the Gina Davis Institute, um, we know that when women are portrayed on screen in movies, they are significantly underrepresented as leaders. Um, they're also portrayed as significantly less effective as, as uh, than men at the national level. So that's that's not helping. And they're more likely to take their clothes off, which I mean, okay, but it's not helping. <laughs> it's not helping people. Um, the other layer to it is that in this research, we've found that there are these qualities that Americans are looking for in their leaders. And what we have done in our studies, we've done about 13 studies now on it, um, is backtracked and coded how Americans, you know, what, what, they're, what they're pulling in as ideal leaders, what their race is, what their gender is, who they are, what their race and gender is. And how they describe these leaders. So, for example, if they bring in Leslie Nope as an ideal leader, how do they describe her? What is it about her that like works? Right? She's often coded as a nurturer. That's one of the qualities. Mm-hmm. Critical six, right? You are my mission. I see you. You matter to me. Sixty-five percent of Americans say they don't feel like they matter. So that that quality matters a whole a whole lot. Um, women often over-indexes challengers. Um, the idea of breaking or bending rules, um, pushing people to their A game, um, exhorting people to to rise to the moment. Um, that's that's a reflective of the world that we live in, you know, pushing against the system, fight the power. Um, but they severely under-index as innovators, one of the most critical qualities when it comes to rising to federal office, um, which is this idea of being a visionary and 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 being able to innovate solutions. And I don't know about you, but I, you just go next door and, and find any woman, right? Going through her day. We are always innovating solutions because this world is not made for yeah. us. Um, yeah. <laughs> so finding, right? <laughs> so finding ways to intentionally lean into that and, and tell those stories so that we're telling the world, hey, by the way, women can do this too. And, and, and here it is on screen. So one of the things your study also found is where women are under-indexing on issues. And I think it, it it was really striking to me that women are under-indexing on uh, being fundamentally American. <laughs> like there's literally a warning sign in the report about this. Um, do you have any sense about why women are not seen as fundamentally American? And is that also a problem of 
perceptions about partisanship or race that yeah. are that might be pro- that that respondents might be projecting onto women. That's a great question. So yeah, it's a thing. Uh, it's actually one of the most important qualities when it comes to what Americans are looking for in their president. The way that we code it is this idea of optimism, embodying the American dream, um, working hard. Um, help. Not that this is literally what it, but it's this idea of like helping granny across the street, right? It's, it's, it's Boy Scout energy or Girl Scout energy, but it's a very particular thing. And when people talk about it, the idea of someone being for America and America and a real patriot and working hard and doing it, nine times out of 10, they're talking about white men. They're not talking about women and they're not talking about black people. Black people are also really severely under-indexed in the perception that they have these qualities. I want to be super clear. They have these qualities, but people are not associating them with these qualities. So telling these stories is super critical. The people who show up as ideal leaders in the fundamentally American quality, um, Andy Griffith, Keanu Reeves, The Rock, um, multiple times, by the way, The Rock. Um, well, I mean, you know. I mean, I, I do need to interview him about it. I think you do. You know, for <laughs> research purposes. But no, no, I, it's, 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 it's wild because it is so, so very important. And, and that's one of the things that we're really trying to, that's a nut that we're really trying to crack. We want to understand moving forward exactly how we execute on these qualities. We know, and this is just incidental, right, from, from what we've seen so far, um, when people do code, a woman is a leader who's fundamentally American. She's usually wearing red lipstick, which feels kind of bonkers and usually standing in front of an American flag. So Gretchen Whitmer and AOC, when, when you do see women, they're there and they, there's, there's a lot of Americana there. So th- I think that that's really interesting. We really want to find out more about that so that women who are running for office, we can help them code in this way when they run for office so that people will associate them with these qualities. But we also want to figure out how we tell stories in Hollywood about this and in our culture. Um, I think what you're saying, Kara, is right. I think that there's also a component here of like gender and what a woman ought to be and which place she should be in society, right? Should she be home making an apple pie? And, And then a man is out there cutting wood like that kind of crap. I think that there's a layer in there, which I think we're going to have to dig into and it's going to be ugly and I'm going to pull my hair out and come back bald. Um, but that, I think, <laughs> I think that there's something there, but we do want to unpack this and figure it out um, because it is so important and because we are seeing this, this five alarm fire around this quality. You sure. know, and I think there's a really interesting thread between that and the challenger piece where they over index. Because it, it's like mm-hmm. there's this concept of when a woman steps into leadership, she's stepping out of line. She's not doing what she should mm-hmm. be doing. So that automatically makes her a challenger. And I had to think about that when I yep. first saw your results. I was like, why do they think women are all challengers? Like it, my immediate thought was, well, wouldn't they see women as weaker? Like, isn't that the stereotype? But then, you know, you dig a little deeper and it's the stepping out of line. It's not doing what's expected of you. And that, that I think very much ties into that American, you know, are you a real, like, what do they think is a real American woman? You know, exactly. if, if we dug exactly. into the, just the woman side of that, what do people think is a real American? And I've seen work That's that, right. you know, a significant pe- portion of people in our society still think that women should be mostly at home raising children. 
which is absolutely fine if that's what she wants to do. But that's not Mm -hmm. what should be forced. Her choice. Absolutely. And I think that that's also too, um, yeah, A, that's messed up, right? And then also B, um, I think that that's where the meet the moment quality comes in. And it is also really interesting. That's also where women are kind of under indexing. And you can see how this thing, by the way, has been weaponized because meet the moment is all about not wanting it so much. And and right. And, and you see when women are attacked running for office, it's like, she's so really ambitious. She wanted it when she was, you know, just when she was born, she wanted to be president. We know. And like, that's all of her moves. And she's so, you know, manipulative. Um, I've heard we've heard these stories about uh, every woman uh, running for office. I think that's interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's interesting about Meet the Moment is it this story of I didn't want it. But then something bad happened and I saw it and people were hurting. And then I b- rose to the moment. I brought together a team and I met the moment. History sort of plucked me out. I met the moment and I, I helped bring people through it. And you see this. People talk about this story um, as, as far as ideal leaders. They'll, they'll bring in Obi-Wan Kenobi. They'll bring in Jon Snow. Jon Snow is like like prime meet the moment, right? But then the one woman that they bring in all day long and twice on Sunday is Sigourney Weaver from Alien, that character. And the thing that they'll say is, you know, this woman, this poor woman, all she wanted to do was play with her cat. And then these aliens came and then she just had to she just had to bring everyone together and lead. And she just did it because people were hurting and that made her great. And, and I, it, it is really interesting when you think about people who have run for office. It's their backstory, right? It's why they got into it in the first place. Joe Biden did it with Charlottesville. Um, I'm blanking on any other leader that's done anything. But like, right, it's this thing. I, I saw pain. I couldn't stand it. I brought people together and I rose. And it, it wasn't for me. It was for the community. And I think that's also why you see people who run as like billionaires you know, and kind of go, I'm going to throw manna from heaven and I will fix everything by myself because I have a very big bank account. They don't necessarily do super well because they're not coming in with that larger team and saying, you know, here's how we fix things. And, and I've, I've proven like I can do it not just by myself, but with others, because government is all about working with others, at least in, in, in theory. <laughs> it isn't theory, but, you know, there's some research suggesting you know so women are women tend to have a more collaborative leadership style to begin with right um whereas men tend to be more hierarchical in their leadership styles um so i mean that's there's sort of i mean there's just this there's a double standard slash paradox slash you know I don't know what you want to label it for women. Um, and I guess it's because the, it, I mean, I think what I'm getting at is like this system is just not structured in a way that it, it, it's it's yes, it's perceptions. But there's also sort of the way the environment is structured um, doesn't allow for women to get there. Um, and it's also not necessarily fundamentally an American phenomenon. So like when Margaret Thatcher became prime minister. Yeah. So she had to take language lessons. She had to take speech lessons to lower her voice to sound more male. 
and then was also told, you know, to wear pink, to wear lipstick, so to appear feminine, right? But to communicate as a man in order to navigate the political structure at the time, right? And <laughs> like this was early 80s, right? We we haven't changed from that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that that's true why the word we're taking the approach that we're taking, right? We we want to help we want to help the unicorns fly over a broken runway, which is our society. We want to help them, you know, if they need to wear pink and lower their voice or wear, wear red, red, red lipstick or wear a flag pin or whatever the hell they need to do. We want to help women do that in the interim. But long term, we want to change the paradigm of what what leadership ought to look like by telling different stories in our culture, by expanding the you know representation of women's stories in our culture so that people when they see, you know, as kids, as adults, um, they see or they think of a leader in their head. They think of somebody who's electable. They think of somebody that people would love. They think of a woman or at least they consider one and don't automatically dismiss her. You know, that's all we're asking for. Yeah. Yeah. But it is interesting. I agree. I agree. What do you make of a New Zealand, by the way? Sorry, I'm going to turn the tables again. Um, (laughs) You know, I'll I'll jump in here. I think New Zealand is a is a unique case. You know, they're a much smaller society. It's a um, lots of different issues. You know, it is telling that um, the prime minister's kind of best approval ratings were in response to disasters, right? You know, so kind of that that compassionate crisis leadership really was Ardern's biggest. So I, I think, you know, I think just the diff- the cultural differences and having a smaller um, island nation where you probably know people more and, you know, people are able to get to know you a little better. And, the, you know, the same with um, Finland, right? You know, it's a, it's a smaller, more homogenous um society and i think they've been a little more able to shift one of the theories that runs around political science every now and then is that the most likely first woman president would be a republican it's because women are assumed to be more liberal just automatically because they're women um which we do see women are a little bit more liberal but um that's not necessarily true of an individual candidate but it is assumed of the individual candidates. Um, I think that's, that's why right. you know the the left was at initially very uh, intimidated by John McCain's pick of Sarah Palin as his vice presidential running mate. Then you know she yeah. didn't necessarily do yeah she didn't moment. meet the moment um, necessarily. But you know I was thinking as you were talking back to some of that rhetoric of. You know, Sarah Palin's lines of what's the difference between a hockey mom and a pit bull? You know, and the answer is lipstick. Yeah. So it's. Yeah, I thought about that. I thought about that. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's trying to mesh the, even for Republican women, there's a challenge of meshing the tough personality with the feminine and getting Mm -hmm. people. And additionally, you know, conservatives are more likely to have views that, are gender normative and so mm-hmm. republican women kind of have to overcome that as well and you know we see that with nikki haley right now she she's 
you know, I've been very impressed by her in the debates, which probably yeah. means yeah, that the modal thing. Republican thinks she's horrible. Um, oh. I, I, I have thought she's performed very well and she's just, you know, she's not able to yeah. get any traction for a number of reasons. Mm-hmm. Anybody not named Trump is having trouble getting traction, to be fair. You know, it's really interesting when you start looking at different parties, different cultures, kind of how all of this plays out. And I really do think the U.S. is behind. And I, you know, and I, I just want to soapbox it for a second and just say, like, this matters, I think. Uh, I've, you know, I've talked to a bunch of people about women's leadership and, you know, I get one of three responses. You know, one response is like, let's meditate through the problem. The young people will save us. Everything is fine. Don't worry. Light a candle, which I'm just too East Coast for that. The second is, do women really matter? I'm more worried about rising fascism and, you know, the world's coming to an end and we'll probably have nukes. The third is, hell yeah, which I like those. But but the, but the ones that, that say, you know, look, do women really matter? I, I mean, here's the thing. Yeah, they do, right? They represent half the population, 51% actually. Women are awesome. We know that when women are in charge, I'm not saying like every woman on the planet is like should be president. No. Um, but when women are in charge, we've seen a lot of women really perform very, very well as leaders, right? During the COVID crisis, we saw less deaths. We see women running investment back. They, they're, they're, they're more thoughtful and, and careful. Um, but even that aside, to automatically disregard half of the talent in a population at a time when there are so many rising crises, when there's so much chaos in the world, when there's so much going on and say, yeah, we're just not even going to look at people, you know, to not even consider women. I think it really does um, our our country a disservice and our kids a disservice and our, our communities a disservice um, to not be considering women as we as we should. So, Gretchen, you are talking about sort of big narrative changes, um, and 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 that's going to take a lot of work. Um, to get there. And and thank you for the important work that you're doing on that front. Um, What else would you change about how women are treated in order to see some progress on this front? Well, certainly the the narratives need to change. The stories need to change about about women as leaders. We need to talk about women's successes. We need to be um, elevating women's voices. And we need to I think have a new model leadership moving into this 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 future that we have and 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 kind of say you know what some of the things that um we've done in the past haven't worked for us and we can do better and and we can um we can really make a case for for a new kind of leadership um that women bring to the table so um I think I think that that's that's also part of it right not just saying like women fit the mold that you're looking for but also um women bring some great talents the table that we have not even had a chance to um to take advantage of and and we should in order to be the best nation we can be (laughs) um i think so yeah i'm 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 optimistic i'm i'm grateful for um for the opportunity to share this with you and i'm and i'm grateful for the the, you know the culture makers on on the west coast and and throughout the united states who are saying yeah let's 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 be intentional about this let's paint from a a broader palette that we than we were aware of when it comes to women, and let's lean in intentionally to the stories we tell about women and girls, so that our society really can meet the moment as we as we move forward. 
Natalie, what would you do to break barriers for women in political leadership? You know, I I, I think uh, Gretchen's work has kind of the right pathway here because it really is about changing what people see. I mean, people bringing in those photos are bringing in what they've seen. They're bringing in somebody from TV. They're bringing in, you know, a real person sometimes. But, um, you know... As much as I love Aaron Sorkin's political writing, his female characters are absolutely terrible and they get run over. And, you know, to some degree, the part about getting run over is accurate because women in polit- political world have to work really hard to not get run over because it there's just a tendency to overlook us, to kind of ignore what we're saying, to not, not read... Not retweet the woman that you see on Twitter, X, whatever. Um, As an expert, you know, to not even see her as an expert. There's academic literature on exactly this. People don't see women as experts, even when they have like 9,000 credentials after their last name. So I do think, you know, we need the female heir in Sorkin to make, make... this, uh, you know, make a society shattering TV show where we see like women being real, um, not a shrill nag of a wife we see in a lot of sitcoms, not just the pretty arm candy that we also see in a lot of sitcoms. It, we need real women characters with, you know, there have been some. Um, Amy Poehler in Parks and Rec is a good one. She's very quirky. I'm not sure it entirely holds up um, to that standard. You know, Tina Fey in 30 Rock is another one. Love Amy and Tina, both, obviously. Shuri and Black Panther. Yeah. Um, You know, there are these women out there. Basically, we just need the world, as Ariana Grande said, God is a woman. We need as many women to look up to as we have men. And yeah. that includes, by the way, I, I don't exclude the, the homemaker as a woman to look up, look up to. That is absolutely a role model as well. Uh, I just think over time we've had quite a few of those. So, you know, the emphasis shifts to showing the broader spectrum of a woman's experience. Well, thank you both so much for taking the time to talk about this important topic with us on Politics is Everything. Listeners, you can find a link to the Worthy Strategy Group in the episode notes. So after learning about Gretchen Barton's new study, we were wondering what images would come to mind about political leadership for UVA students. And we conducted a little experiment. Take a listen and let us know if the study or what students say resonate with you. Email us at goodpolitics at virginia.edu. Hi, I'm Kylie Holzman, a second year student at UVA and an intern this semester with the Center for Politics. Quick question. Um, What do you think of when you picture an ideal political leader? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I think of someone that is strong and capable, um, well-informed, and someone that is willing to speak out against the issues that the average American or person is is important to them. So someone that's strong, capable, and outspoken and willing to stand up for the average American. Is there a particular image that comes to mind when you think of a leader? 
Sure. Um, I guess a specific person that comes to mind to me is um, Barack Obama. And he was just someone who I picture as a leader and came straight to my mind as soon as um, this question was asked. Um, and he was an extremely capable leader and was um, very informative during my um, early years as a student. And I think he as a leader really shaped America and kind of what I perceive the strength of being an American really is. Cool. The question is, what comes to mind when you think of a political leader? Okay, when I think of a political leader, I think of someone who is strong, resilient, self-assured, and also loyal to American values. Is there, is there a particular image that comes to mind when you think of that person? Um, I sometimes think about some of the founding fathers. I guess going to UVA, I think about Thomas Jefferson, um, people like that who I guess were faithful to America and the preservation of democracy. Okay. The question is, what comes to mind when you think of an ideal political leader? Uh, what comes to mind for me is just somebody that's for the people, um, that prioritizes the people over self-interest, and that just does whatever they can in their power to uh, achieve like prosperity for the country and for the people. Is there a certain image that comes to mind when you think of that person? Um, myself. The question is what comes to mind when you think of an ideal political leader? I think someone who's accountable. Um, I think that's something that's not as widely seen, I feel like, in today's world. Um, on both sides, you know, I think people are pretty stubborn and don't want to, um, don't want to maybe fess up to maybe certain things that didn't go the right way on their end or you know vice versa so i think accountability is something that would be a really good trait to see in a leader is there a certain image that comes to mind when you're picturing that leader oh no not in particular i do you want me to come up with one <laughs> i can't think of something right now what do you think of when you think of an ideal political leader um well i think of someone who is well-spoken or I think of someone who's well-spoken, um, someone who's direct and honest with the people. And I think the biggest problem with many politicians today is the lack of integrity and the lack to deliver uh, on their promises. So I feel like, again, someone who's direct and just honest with the people. The question is, what do you think of when you think of an ideal political leader? I think of someone who is willing to stand up for what they believe in and their values uh, and stay true to their word and their supporters while also recognizing how shifting realities necessitate shifting policy solutions. Is there a certain image that comes to mind? Bernie Sanders. Okay, so what do you think of when you think of an ideal political um, I think of someone who is charismatic intelligent, empathetic, accountable for their actions, and self-aware of the mistakes that they make, and deeply reflective of their place in politics and how the decisions that they make affect the country. And what image comes? I think about civil rights leaders um, like Angela Davis and Kimberly Crenshaw. The question is, what comes to mind when you think of an ideal political leader? Ronald Reagan. 
obviously I'm biased. Like obviously I want them to be a member of my preferred party, but I would also like them to be very good at like congregating and amongst most like both aisles in the sense of there's less political polarization in the House and the Senate and just in general in the public. The question is what comes to mind when you think of an ideal political leader? Someone who is honest and is willing to stand up for what's right. And what particular image, if any, comes to mind when you think of that leader? Going really far back and probably an obvious answer is Abraham Lincoln. Um, Yeah, facing a lot of political pressure from both sides to cave and give up um, on what he believed in. And I think he, he stood up for what was right. Cool. What comes to mind when you think of an ideal political leader? Um, I think of honesty. I think of courage, humility, um, and just the willingness to be inclusive. And um, yeah, yeah. So I think be better that. Good. What what um, image comes to mind when you think of that leader? Um, I don't have anyone specific in mind, but for me, I think of a woman, um, more specifically a black woman. The question is, what comes to mind when you're thinking of an ideal political leader? Um, I think accountability is what I think of. So someone who can actually like carry out like what they're saying rather than just talk about like big ideas and stuff like that, but someone who actually has a plan to like follow through and actually really like like hold true what they're saying. And also just in general accountability for their actions as well. Um, and you know, like just being accountable if they make mistakes um, and making like those kinds of apologies when necessary. Question is, what do you think of when you think of an ideal political leader? An ideal political leader is someone who actually echoes the will of the majority of people and isn't just like adhering to what donors want or what or just like focusing on their reelection efforts. I feel like it is kind of rare to see nowadays because most of American politics is geared towards just appealing to your voter base and not necessarily the majority of people. Example, abortion. So that's what I think a good leader should embody. And what image comes to mind when you think that I think someone who is outspoken and not afraid to break the status quo. Like, for example, like union leaders, they like risk their jobs, they risk everything to advocate for what people want. And I think that's like the that's the image of democracy that most political leaders should embody. Thank you. Question is, what do you think of when you think of an ideal political? Um, I think of somebody who goes out of their way to work with their community and really understand what they want and not focus on what maybe just the status quo is or what their donors want, really looking to the people to what they want. And what image comes to mind when you think of um, Someone courageous, someone willing to stand up against the status quo. When I think of an ideal political leader, I think of someone who is willing to put the needs of the many ahead of their own, someone who is willing to put aside their personal beliefs and everything to do what's good for the group and for the country as a whole. They're willing to sacrifice maybe their position or something to do something good for the whole country, like 
for example, I think of a really strong leader recently would be like Liz Cheney. She was willing to step up and, you know, defend what she thought was right for uh, the January 6th insurrection, even though it had the high chance of costing her her political position. So I just think stepping up and doing that is a good responsibility for a leader. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong Whaley. You can learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also engage with us on social media at Center Number Four Politics. We welcome your suggestions and questions for future episodes. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.